Evo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo Product and Community Director, and today's podcast is with two guests that are going to be talking about a mirror syndrome. So I'd like them to introduce themselves. So, Pablo? Many thanks, Stacey, for having us. My name is Pablo Valdivia, and uh, we are very grateful for your kind invitation to participate in this podcast. Uh, I'm the full professor of European Culture and Literature at the University of Groningen. Thank you. My name is Rosmarianne Begeholz. Um, I'm a PhD candidate from the University of Groningen and from the University Austral of Chile. Uh, many thanks for having us. It is a pleasure and an honor to be part of this great podcast series. Great. Thank you. So thank you both for joining me. So I just wanted to start with the first question. Why did you decide to do research on mirror syndrome, also known as body dysmorphia syndrome? Well, this is a very good question. It was uh, Rosemary Ann who originally had the initial idea for this research. I met her when uh, she did a pitch to get enrolled as a PhD candidate at the University of Groningen. After listening to her, I immediately thought this could be a great research project that I would like to supervise and contribute to. Rosemary, could you explain how you came up with the brilliant idea of working on the mirror syndrome? The idea came to me when I noticed that around me, more and more young women in college were developing behaviors that were toxic to their health in the way they interacted with social networks. Specifically, I thought there could be an exciting new line of research to develop when I saw that people around me were using many filters and photo editors to edit their portraits or not allowing someone to upload images of themselves without first having modified them. Hence, there was an increasing dissonance between the real image and the one uploaded to social networks. These behaviors are increasingly frequent and harmful to both the physical and mental health of users of the platforms, as mentioned earlier. So I thought that researching this phenomenon could contribute to science and the whole of our globalized society. Specifically, I focus on the mirror syndrome, which is medically called body dysmorphic disorder and consists of psychiatric pathology in which those who suffer from it cannot stop thinking about one or more physical defects, real or imaginary, leading to develop anxiety, panic attacks, depression, eating disorders, and even suicides. In the beginning, when I presented the possibility of doing my doctoral research on this topic, which I consider urgent since it affects primarily young women around the world, in my home institution, Universidad Austral de Chile, they did not believe much in my project, except who has always believed in me, the supervisor of my research master's degree, Professor Rodrigo Brown. Thanks to him, I met Pablo, who interviewed me, and as soon as he heard my ideas, he offered me the opportunity to do a PhD in parallel to the one I was starting in Chile and to join his research team. Thanks to him, I have received training from the University of Groningen and Harvard University to develop my research and career as an academic researcher. Wow, that's great. <laughs> See, you never know, connections. <laughs> that's excellent. 
And how do cultural narratives impact mirror syndrome? They impact significantly because they privilege certain modes of communication, thinking, feeling, and even orientating behavior. Narratives are mighty instruments. They can make us unconsciously develop emotions and worldviews about very complex and abstract processes. For instance, in the 19th century, they were crucial for creating national identities and the construction of the national states. Today, they are very pervasive in everyday life. We are the stories we believe in. Regarding the mirror syndrome, hegemonic cultural narratives regarding canons of beauty and physical appearance contribute to shaping, justifying, and building how we relate to our bodies and other people in our societies. Currently, the cultural narrative of the body as in a state of permanent crisis is causing significant harm to young women and a more severe impacts on mirror syndrome's toxic effects. In the logic created by this cultural narrative, uh, women are under a permanent state of dissatisfaction between their actual bodies and the normative privileged image that they are expected to have and project. Such unbearable social and psychological pressure, mostly exercised by the current dominant cultural narrative, tells women that they have to do whatever it takes to fit into unrealistic and unreachable bodies. The subsequent disjoint between reality and expectations are like a pandemic, threatening the well-being and physical and mental integrity of millions of uh, women worldwide. Perhaps uh, uh, Rosemary could, could expand on, on this. Thank you. I fully concur with Pablo's views. In this regard, I would like to add that we see growing numbers of women diagnosed with mirror syndrome. Many of these women are every year younger and younger. Besides, more and more people affected by the mirror syndrome have declared to suffer from regular suicidal thoughts. And many have already attempted to commit suicide or somehow physically harm themselves. As long as the dominant cultural narrative that we consume every day keeps putting pressure on our bodies as being under a permanent state of crisis and never being enough good to match the unrealistic construction conveyed by media, it will be very difficult to reduce the negative impact of the mirror syndrome. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by QSR International, developers of Envivo and other software solutions for leading researchers and educators. If you're looking for an easy way to analyze and visualize your data, try using Envivo to create word frequency charts, word clouds, comparison diagrams, and more with the 14-day trial. And how did qualitative methodology inform the theoretical crossroads of cultural, communication, media, and medical studies in your work? Well, this is an excellent question and very related to our research. Something that Pablo and I have discussed many times is that quantitative data is important, but it does not allow us to fully understand very complex processes such as the mirror syndrome. Why? If we only pay attention to purely quantitative data, we cannot access a key informational processing that shapes, affects ways of thinking or how we narratively make sense of our bodies and the world we live in. As Pablo said before, we are the stories we believe in. From our research perspective, the narrative aspect interconnects our multidisciplinary approach, converging into apparently unrelated knowledge domains such as culture, communication, media, and medical studies. 
In my view, we had an epistemological problem in the past, which consisted of not having the necessary knowledge and tools for understanding how narratives operate. So when uh, dealing with qualitative approaches, they primarily relied on vast subjective generalizations. However, thanks to tools such as Envivo, qualitative methodologies are revolutionizing how we make science. For instance, we cannot just analyze the metrics of a patient in a purely quantitative traditional approach, but we can also understand how the patient relates to the illness, to the treatment, how such pathology is pervasive or not in a community, how is it affecting the emotional and cognitive well-being of individuals and families, in what manners we can improve the way we communicate about such a challenge and in which ways cultural elements might or not play a decisive role in improving the quality of treatments, diagnosis and preventive actions. In short, what uh, we have now is access to a lot of information we did not have in the past, thanks to qualitative new methodologies based on accurate and rigorous data management. So this is especially important when holistically analyzing complex phenomena like the mirror syndrome in particular, and non-communicable diseases in general. Thank you. So part of what you write about is about crisis that these women are going through. So how do you define crisis? Well, etymologically, crisis is the very moment you make a decision. It comes uh, from the medical domain, and it is related to the exact decision that could make your patient live or die. Nowadays, a crisis is generally associated with a moment of rupture and instability, which produces a disruption of pre-existing structures. Although a crisis tends to receive negative connotations, it is a term related to a moment of change. And change can lead to processes of stagnation or lack of progress, but also processes of renewal, especially about the construction and developments of our societies Crises have been powerful accelerators of previously ongoing processes. A good example of this is the current digital transformation that our societies are witnessing. Oh, I like that definition. So you're basically saying, so the crisis, it basically, because there's a crisis, it, it causes change. Exactly. So basically, a, a crisis is always a moment that is opening opportunity for change. Then it's up to us as societies, as uh, citizens, to define what kind of change we want. Mm -hmm. It could be a change to perhaps uh, move back to values and traditions or worldviews that somehow could jeopardize uh, our democratic gains. But also, it can help us to delve into our democratic cultures and societies mm -hmm. and to, well, further improve uh, our conditions of living. Yeah, so it doesn't always have to be negative. It can also have positive change. That, that, that's I like. Exactly. Yeah. How did you research online social networks? Well, our approach is based on qualitative and quantitative research, the so-called mixed research method, methods root in grounded theory. In this particular project on the mirror syndrome, uh, what we did was design a new instrument which could provide information about the psychometric proprieties of studied subjects to the collection of quantitative data using Likert scales and also by creating open-ended questions that could be analyzed from qualitative data analysis approach will having the potential to be cross-validated not only with the amount cross-validated not only with quantitative collected data but also with other informational input 
A great amount of time was spent on the rate design and calibration of the data collection instrument for scientific purposes and ensuring compliance with the highest ethical standards and safe data management. What uh, Rosemary mentioned is perhaps the less known aspect, despite its importance, of how to do scientific research with online social networks. Some people naively believe that we simply look into a social network and start inferring ideas out of our use of them. However, this is not how it works. As soon as our research question and hypothesis were well delineated, we carefully worked on constructing a reliable instrument for collecting the data in coordination with the research design of the project and relevant uh, data management. In this regard, the colleagues from the Digital Competence Center of the University of Groningen guided and supported us on technical aspects and legal related elements on how to access the data, use it, etc. For instance, we did not release the instruments until we got the international certificate from the ethics committee. How many participants did you have participants or is it you're going onto the social network site or both? We have participants, so mm -hmm. we are collecting the data uh, from uh, partner universities and colleagues who are collaborating with us. And uh, our target is uh, 500 participants, but uh, it might be even uh, higher, the sample, because uh, we are close to, to reach that number already. So now what we are looking is at the potential gaps that our sample might have we are focusing on diversity. So for instance, now we are focusing more on uh, uh, having a, well, a sample that is representative from uh, communities all over, all over the world. Oh, wow, that's awesome, that's great. So what technology do you use to analyze your data? After we discovered in vivo around two years and a half ago, and we got trained in how to use it at Harvard University, we have stopped uh, using such tools and we only use in vivo because Envivo uh, offers unmatchable functionalities, uh, visualizations, integrations, possibilities to work with very different sources and the chance to integrate our research process into the research design, which helps a lot to decrease margins of error in our scientific work. On the mirror syndrome is the possibility of running cluster analysis, sentiment analysis, network analysis, and topic modeling while visualizing our findings in one place. In Envivo, we can also import our research logs, uh, and so this vast horizon of different ways of working with our data is truly liberating. It allows us to be more creative in approaching very complex data, even when assessing our research questions and working hypotheses. Also, what uh, for us was great is that since we work with a lot of sensitive data, we needed a very safe environment. All the data collected is managed in a computer with a special encryption technology that only Rosemary Ann and I can access, and for which the University of Groningen bought us the latest version of Envivo. Also, the data is safely stored in a server owned by the University of Groningen, which is part of an internal network that only Rosemary and I can access via a special authentication protocol, which cannot uh, explain, we cannot explain here, sorry, <laughs> for confidential and security reasons. So to sum it up, Envivo has been a true game changer for our research and it has expanded in an imaginable ways how we analyze our data and carry out and design our research. Great, thank you. 
We'll take a short break to find Rosemary's article on Mirror Syndrome, Young Female University Students' Reactions to Beauty Influencers Activity on Instagram. Please visit the Netherlands Research School for Literary Studies at www.oslit.nl. What are your findings? I know it sounds like you're still collecting data, but what are some of your, I guess, preliminary findings? Well, our findings have been collected thanks to the instrument mentioned above. Actual subjects have been participating in this global research. For confidentiality reasons, we cannot give more details, but we are collecting a substantial data corpus that will allow us to understand better how the mirror syndrome operates, how we can prevent it, and which are the factors that are playing a major role in harming young women, such as the current targeting and design of certain social networks. So how are policy changing to address the mental impact of online social networks? Actually, Rosemary is writing a chapter of her thesis on this matter. Unfortunately, what we have seen is that very timid steps have not always been taken with the desired effects. Norway was the first country pioneering in issuing regulations about how influencers could deliver information, and some disclaimers were introduced. Spain is about to approve a new law that will target how influencers can communicate about products and services. High fines are expected, like 30,000 euros for spreading misinformation or doing illegal product placement. However, there is a very important legislative gap. From our perspective, it does not make sense that we have regulations on massive traditional communications channels, but broadly, all social media still are non-regulated despite the proven adverse effects on psychological well-being and even how they can threaten the most fundamental democratic principles. Uh, Chile is uh, working on a new uh, neuro rights law, but we are afraid it can arrive too late or become anachronistic, given how technology and social networks develop. Policies have not been very successful at dealing with the mental impacts of online social networks, I would say. So do you feel it's more addressing, uh, helping the individual more? to understand what's happening would have a bigger impact than the policies at this point? Yes, we believe that uh, our research uh, will, will help to understand better and also to inform policymakers, also assist in the process of uh, taking decisions, informed decisions about how we can regulate the social networks, or at least how we can understand the harm that this is causing to millions of people all over the world. And both of you can do this if you want, but what's one piece of advice would you give a researcher studying social networks? Well, I think that your research question, hypothesis, and object of a study must be very well aligned with a solid research design, methodology, methodology, and data management plan. Choose wisely and carefully the technology used for your research. For instance, Envivo is a great tool that will help you freely develop your ideas, but you should not use NVivo without the proper training and clear research goals. I fully agree with uh, Rosemary. Also, I would like to add that it is important to ensure that uh, your research is fully testable and complies with the highest standards regarding ethics and scientific protocols. It's very important to work in multidisciplinary teams 
together with lawyers with expertise in data management and other colleagues who will help you develop your projects in the right way. Uh, be aware of your biases and possible inherent biases in the research process, such as confirmation bias, false equivalence bias, etc. Be ready to fail and to deal with errors and develop protocols to deal with them in a way that will improve and take your research further. Envivo is a great tool to help you unveil the, uh, new research methods and perhaps uh, make future key contributions to timely and urgent societal challenges. We are true advocates of uh, purposeful and meaningful research. In this regard, Envivo uh, has helped us a lot to rethink the humanities and the social sciences and work at the new frontiers of science. So thank you, Pablo and Rosemary. It was great talking with you and thanks for those tuning in. Listeners, if you enjoyed learning more about mirror syndrome in this episode, we'd appreciate your support by rating and subscribing to the NVivo podcast. This helps us share these amazing narratives with the research community. So thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about NVivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.nvivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna, P-E-N-N-A, at qsrinternational.com.